Father, I just want to thank you for Neil and what you've placed on his heart, Lord. And I hope that I pray that you help him to communicate your agenda for tonight and your heart towards us and also your scriptures, Lord. In your name, amen. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Skonk. Good evening, everybody. And to the rest of you, too. Thank you. Well, I think that um, God has been speaking to us through the worship and so on. But as we just get into where I felt the Lord lead me to, to speak tonight, I want to start by asking this question. What's your bigger picture? What is your bigger picture? How do you see part of what does your life fit into? What's the story, the biggest story that the story of your life fits into? Where does it fit? What is, what is your bigger picture? Now, I don't necessarily believe that we have like a once-off event. I think it happens really for some people where, you know, you have this encounter, happenstance, something happens in your life, and you just know the whole thing. The whole, you know, you've got it, the whole vista of your life, you know where it fits. I think for most of us, the, the bigger picture kind of gets clearer and clearer, particularly as we journey with God, this picture gets clearer and clearer. I remember the first time I started getting a an inkling or a sense of, of my bigger picture. I was um, 15 years old, I think, and I was actually having my first communion. It was that stage and at that time of my life, and I remember the minister that was preaching at that time. How's this? I even remember his name, and it's a while ago, Reverend Jack Skulls, okay? And he preached uh, at this communion service, this first communion service for us. He preached, and one of the main things he said was that this phrase. He said, he died for me, speaking about Jesus. He died for me, so I'll live for him. He died for me, so I'll live for him. And I remember that phrase, somehow things aligned in my life, that that phrase just went straight into my heart, and it, it grew there. And I remember that, uh, in the church we were in, we used to go up to the front and, and kneel uh, at the communion altar rail, and then you know, they'd come and serve you communion. I remember kneeling there, and I remember saying to Jesus, this is real for me. You died for me. The cross was for me. And for that, I'll live for you. And that was part of my bigger picture. That's part of my story. My life, if I can serve Jesus with my life, that's part of my bigger picture. Other things were added later, like one of the big things for me is loving the church. Everything I do fits into this picture of, of loving the church. As, you know, the church is the most important thing in the world. It's the primary agency of God on earth. But that's a different message. I'll get into that another time. What's your bigger picture? What do you know of it? What is clear for you? Hopefully, since we live in what some people are referring to as a selfie generation, your bigger picture is not you. Your bigger picture is not just your life, not just what comforts you, what works for you, what you want to accomplish. Hopefully, your bigger picture is a little bit beyond yourself. You see, bigger pictures one of the things they do is they help us live beyond ourselves. They help us go beyond what sometimes we think we're capable of, beyond what we've experienced so far in life. They help us define who we are, and even our bigger pictures help us define who we want to be. And so tonight, just if I have to have a title to my message, I want to talk about one of the bigger pictures that the New Testament particularly focuses on. And the title of my message is Committed to the Kingdom. And it was interesting for me throughout worship that there was this thing coming through in the Spirit in many songs. There were many things coming through because you know, that's how God does. He doesn't just do one thing at a time. He just 
has multiple agendas plugging in at the same time. But one of the clear things that I kept hearing was this call to devotion, call to commitment, this call about the kingdom. And this fits, obviously, we're busy with our theme for, for this term in particular. We've been focusing on kingdom living. How do I live in God's kingdom? And we've spoken a bit, I think you would have heard it in the evenings, about up, in and out. And this triangle that we've been using where we say that if you want to be citizens in God's kingdom, if you want to live well in his kingdom, if you want to be committed to his kingdom, we need to learn to live up, in and out all simultaneously. You don't do one, then the other. It's kind of this multiple thing. Up is about our relationship with God. And we should be growing in our relationship with God as we live well in his kingdom. In is largely about our relationships in our communities, our families, our Christian community, our community of faith, the church. And that helps us grow in God. We should be growing in our interactions and in our relationships, but we should also be growing in our out. How do we take what we get from God in our loving communities and translate it into our worlds, the workplaces, the campuses, wherever we find ourselves to be? Up in and out is this effective way of living in God's kingdom. And so as we turn to the scripture, we're going to spend some time in Matthew 13. The scriptures will come up on the screen. Uh, what Matthew's done here is, as Jesus lived on earth and, and as the other Matthew, KB's Matthew, let's do it that way. Sorry, I don't want you to be defined you by your wife, but it's never bad. Okay. I'm Neil, the husband of Tia. Um, she's awesome um, most days. Um, <laughs> no, she's awesome all the time. Okay, back. Sorry, I digress. I thought of my wife. Um, one of the big themes of Jesus' preaching, as Matthew said earlier, he comes out of the desert. He's just overcome temptation. And one of the first things Jesus starts teaching about is repent for the kingdom of God is here. It's a big thing of what Jesus did. He actualized, he initiated the kingdom of God on earth. It had been spoken about in the Old Testament uh, through ideas like God saying, they will be my people and I will be their God and I will dwell with them. The concept has always been there. But one of the big themes that Jesus speaks about is this idea of kingdom. And simply put, kingdom is where God rules and reigns. Okay, and we don't need to get more technical than that tonight. And there's many of these themes that run through Scripture, but a major one definitely in the teachings of Jesus and in the minds of the New Testament writers is this idea of kingdom. And Matthew takes a lot of what Jesus says about kingdom, and in chapter 13 he puts a whole lot of parables and stories and things that Jesus tells, tells about the kingdom. And I just want to look at one of the, well, it's two kind of metaphors, Maybe it's even a simile. I don't know. My English is not that great. Um, that Jesus uses when he speaks about the kingdom. And they're found in verse Matthew 13, 44 to 46. I'm going to read from the New International Version. Jesus speaking. God speaking about the kingdom. And it's recorded for us this way. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had. And he bought that field, because obviously he's off to the treasure. Hey? Okay. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in, read it again, in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought the field. And then Jesus goes on, and again he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Why did God say this? Why does God want us to know how valuable 
the kingdom is. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor. The details aren't all that important. For example, you don't find the kingdom, hide it, save up, and go and buy it. Okay, that's not the point of the analogy that Jesus makes. Okay, you got that, eh? You don't buy the kingdom. You can't afford it anyway. Okay. One price, death of Jesus Christ. All right. The point of these little parables that Jesus is telling you is about the value. That when you encounter the kingdom, when you find the kingdom, there is nothing more valuable. There's nothing that tops it. In fact, it's worthy of giving away everything you have to gain this, to get this. And so I want to say it this way tonight. The value of the kingdom outweighs everything. I think that's the, the point of these many parables, actually, that some people call them parables that Jesus says. The value of the kingdom outweighs everything. When we encounter the kingdom, we cannot respond with indifference. You can ignore it. You can try and avoid it. But I think it was in, someone said tonight, but the kingdom is, the kingdom is a coming. Okay, it's here already and it's coming more. The value of the kingdom outweighs everything. And so as I was thinking about this, uh, it's interesting in the last while I've been thinking a little bit about our heritage, what we inherit, what's gone before us in our uh, family of faith. Sometimes people, people talk about the church universal. In other words, the church that Jesus established that has existed through time. What we're experiencing here tonight, we call local church. We gathered in a local space. And one of the things that happens in a lot of modern churches or progressive churches is uh, we don't always recognize the people of faith, the heroes of faith, the men and women who lived over centuries before us who walked with God in meaningful ways and the things we can learn from them. And one of my favorite spaces in church history is the first three, four hundred years. I like it. There's a, uh, there's a radicalness to it. There's an edge to it. I mean, if you believed in Jesus for about the first 300 years or so, you could get killed you know, just for believing in him, for owning a Bible. At some stages, you could get killed. There's something there that feels raw and, and pure to me. So, so I like it. Don't every, it's not everybody's cup of tea. So I like reading about, we call them the church fathers. These were the people who led the church after the apostles in the 100s and the 200s, 300s into the early 400s even uh, after Christ. Sorry, let me get you orientated in time and space here. 100 AD, 200 AD, 300 AD, so on. Church fathers, and they write for us such rich things. And um, I want to just highlight a little bit later two or three things that we learn from how people lived in this time in church history. Not absolutely not everything, but just something. But as we think about our heritage, what do we learn about the kingdom? Well, one of the first things we learn about the kingdom is from Jesus. Uh, during his trial with Pontius Pilate, Jesus he says this interesting thing. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. It's John 18, 36, if you want to reference. But Jesus is drawing an analogy. A Pilate is going to him, are you a king? Do you rule? Are you guilty of the things they're accusing you of? And there's this interesting interaction because Jesus says to him, if my kingdom was of this world, in other words, if it was like all the kingdoms. Now, we're not so familiar with kingdoms today. Nations is not a good equivalent. Countries doesn't help us much at all. But if you want to try and think that, that way, just Jesus says, my country, my kingdom doesn't run like other countries do, like other kingdoms do. It's not of this world. He says, in fact, if it was, people would be fighting to set me free now. And we know this, that, you know, he could have, whatever, snapped his fingers or called out and there would have been angels and all that stuff. But Jesus very clearly states that his kingdom doesn't work 
like, let's call them the kingdoms of this world. It works differently. Even at times of great distress and inflection and like, here's Jesus about to be crucified. The normal thing would have been, you know, get my followers, let's fight, break out, brave our freedom, all that stuff. Okay. But he just says, I'm not doing that. I'm going to surrender my life. I'm not going to fight for my life. I'm going to surrender my life. My king, God's kingdom works differently. In God's kingdom, we bless and not curse our enemies. In God's kingdom, we forgive whatever atrocities, indespicable things have been done to us. We forgive. God's kingdom works different. Peter, the apostle, writes in some of his writings and he says, we are like foreigners and aliens in this world. Not aliens, green men. Aliens, foreigners. We're like foreigners and aliens in this world. The way we live is different. That's one of the things we know about the kingdom. This world is not really our home. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world, meaning it doesn't work like the kingdoms of this world. We also know that it's a kingdom of love because the king, our extraordinary king, we preached on that a while back, is a king of love. He's a father. He loves us, and everything in the kingdom is defined based on who he is and what he does. And so we live in this kingdom of love. In fact, Jesus said it's our distinctive. What makes us different as a community, as foreigners and aliens in this world, what makes us different is our love for one another. By this, all men will know that you are my, remember this verse, my disciples, by your love for one another. That's in John 13. And so God's, Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of this world, it's a kingdom of love. But there's two, three things I want to highlight as these members of our ancient faith community, our brothers and sisters who lived 1,800, 1,700 years ago, that they learned as they try to flesh out this kingdom, this kingdom that's not of this world, this kingdom of love, as they try to live it out, what did they, some of the key things that we learned from them, what did we learn from church history? particularly in the first couple hundred years. One of the things we learn is that, and they didn't phrase it this way, it's just I chose to phrase it this way, love changes everything. It's one of the things they learned. Love changes everything. The world power at the time that they lived was the Roman Empire. It was basically a Greco-Greek-Roman culture. It didn't have a high value on human life at all. For example, slavery was rife. Probably scholars, some scholars estimate that sometimes at certain stages, the majority of the people alive in the Roman Empire, Europe, uh, Middle East, North Africa, that area of the world, majority of the people were slaves. They were treated like property and not persons. No value on human life. One of the common practices was something called, sorry, big word, infanticide. Infanticide, yeah, that's right. Am I saying it right, Mike? Thank you. Where common practice well, relatively common practice, was if, for example, if you wanted a male heir and the baby born wasn't a male, they would take the child, and sometimes even if they just couldn't afford it, and go leave the child on the rubbish dump, on the city dump. It was their form of abortion, I guess you could call it that. And something interesting happens in the, in the hundred, few hundred years after Jesus. We find citizens of God's kingdom, our brothers and sisters, our ancient brothers and sisters, one of the things we read, in, even in the writings of the secular historians at that time, is that the Christian widows would daily go walk past the rubbish dumps outside the city of Rome. 
And they would go and look for these little girls and other children, any children that were left there, that had been just left to die, exposed to the elements. And the Christian widows would take them and they'd care for them and they'd give them for home. Because our kingdom is a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom that recognizes the value of life. In a world that was characterized by just, even if you think of the crucifixion, that's a horrible way to die. Who would have invented that? Okay, you need a relatively depraved mind to come up with that way to kill people. That's how people were treated. But here come the Christians and they have this radically different view on life. And they start changing the world. We read in church history something unheard that starts happening where slaves and masters start going to their deaths together in the name of Jesus. It's the story of a lady, her name is Domitella. Do they even know her name, eh? I think she lived in the 200s. But there was a season of persecution on the church. And they arrest her, and she's a, of noble birth. She's a Roman patron. She didn't deserve to get treated like that. She could have used her social status to get out of it. But she wouldn't deny the name of Jesus. And her and one of her slaves, her attending slave, they walk into one of the Colosseums together and they get killed. A person of status and a slave together, changing the culture of the time. Because, you see, they firmly believed that love changes everything. They overcame the might of the Roman Empire. If you read even some of the people who wrote against Christianity in the 300s and 400s, they blamed the Christians for the fall of Rome. Now, they attributed to the fact that the Christians caused people to uh, stop worshipping the Roman gods. But the truth is, what brought down the Roman Empire was Christians loving people in Jesus' name. Taking loving people in a way that the culture didn't allow, in a way that the culture didn't expect. So we learn that in God's kingdom, love changes everything. In the kingdom that we are citizens of, love changes everything. Something else we learn from our ancient family of faith, is that the future governs our present. The future governs our present. I could say our future reality governs our present conduct. They were so aware of this idea that God's kingdom was coming in increasing measure. They so felt the reality that Jesus would return that they didn't hold their lives too tightly. And we read, they get a little weird, okay? But we read about the martyrs. Now, when, when the um, authors of the New Testament wrote martyr, the word meant witness. It meant that you witness with your life. Your whole life bears testimony to what you believe. And so we're all, in that sense, Christian martyrs. We witness. But in the 100s, 200s, particularly during seasons of persecution, this word became associated with a special class of Christian who went to their deaths still faithfully confessing Jesus. They'd get tortured by the Roman government, and these guys, they knew how to torture. Let me just say that. Okay, I'm not going to, it's too graphic. I won't tell you some of this stuff. They were good at it. Can I just put it that way? Is that fine? And they would go, and only if you died confessing Jesus would you get martyr class, if I can put it that way. You only get the badge. If you were being tested and you were busy being tortured, you weren't yet a martyr, you were just on trial. They, they developed this radical idea. And what drove them to do that? What drove them to die with peace? What drove them to be so willing to embrace Christ in this way? Is that they believed heaven was real. They believed that the future governed the present. Because they would live with Jesus forever, this life was not all there is. This life wasn't something you hold on to tightly. 
That's why the Apostle John records for us in the book of Revelation, they overcame the world, the enemy, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and not loving their lives so much as to shrink back from death. How much do we allow our futurality that we will be with God, that heaven will come to earth or we will go to heaven, whichever way you like it. It's going to work out anyway. How much does that govern the fact that I will one day stand in front of Jesus, if I understand the scriptures correctly, and he will look at me and say, what did you do with what I gave you? I don't know if you'll use those words. It's going to be very scary. It's not something I think about just before I go to sleep at night. One day we will all each, as we understand it, personally stand before Jesus and you will give an account for your life. The intention of the judgment is reward. You'll be rewarded for being obedient. You'll be rewarded for being a faithful citizen in the kingdom. So the future governs our present. One of the last things that I want to just highlight is one of something else we learn from our ancient family of faith is that we don't conform, we transform. We don't conform, we transform. They would not conform to the pattern of the society. Even when the society tried to kill them, and all the stories I've just told you, they loved and they forgave. And there's multiple testimonies of where the, the Roman soldiers were torturing Christians to their death. They died such good deaths that the soldiers, that their torturers got converted. How's that? <laughs> I'm going to die so well, you are going to believe in Jesus. It's a radically different view of the world. And it was a certain season. It was a certain time. Statisticians tell us that there are more people being martyred in the name of Jesus in the last, I think, five or ten years than at any other time in history. This is not just a historical phenomenon. It's something that still happens because we become citizens of this kingdom that is not of this world. These, what we would regard as simple and unsophisticated people, no internet, no cell phone, no ability to mass communicate. They changed the whole Roman Empire. They changed their whole world. They changed their whole generation because they're committed to the kingdom. You see, they find the kingdom in Jesus and they realize that the value of the kingdom outweighs everything. And they change the world within their generation. They find this treasure that is the kingdom. They find this pull of great price and they give up everything to pursue what God is calling them to do. So that's a little bit about the past. What about the present? They changed their world, our historical family of faith. What does our expression of the kingdom look like? What does our transformational expression of the kingdom look like? What does it look like? How are we trying to change not only ourselves, but our world around us? Now this is a massive question. And there's lots of discussion and debate, and uh, you all know Garth, who sometimes preaches, if he was here, he'd be coming up out of his chair and, uh, to talk about how we're going to change the world. But as we're considering tonight, what does your and my transformational expression of the kingdom look like? How are we trying to change our world? Firstly, how are we letting the kingdom impact our lives? I have found the treasure. I have found the pearl. What does it mean in my heart, in my life? And then how is that translating into society, in the world around me, this kingdom that's not of this world, this kingdom of love, what am I doing with it? Now, each of us sitting here tonight knows that we live in a broken world. We live in a world that is flawed. It doesn't work the way God made it to work, if you want to be utilitarian about it. Things are not as they should be. 
We know this. It's a world marred by sin. It's a world marred by the consequences of sin and selfishness. And there's massive issues that we can speak into. And yet our kingdom requires it first that light must shine in dark places. Light must shine in human trafficking. Hope must be brought to people in despair. People in poverty need hope. We could talk about land. God's kingdom has an answer and a view on that. Now, in all these things, if I talk to people who work in this field and and go there, all these journeys of transforming society, changing the world, they all start in one place. You want to know what that place is? Do you? The human heart. The journey always starts in your heart. Every single journey of transformation. They change the world in the 100s and the 200s and the 300s because their hearts encountered the kingdom. And their hearts said nothing is more important than that. The value of the kingdom outweighs everything that pulls into their hearts. So if we take our up in and out triangle and we just completely apply it internally, how are you growing in your relationship with God? How are you dealing with your inward issues, your internal issues? And how's that translating out of your life if we change the scale of that? Are we coming to a place in our hearts where we want God's answer and not the answers of this world? Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. And often we try and approach these massive issues of life with the world's answers. Sorry if this is controversial. I'm, I'm almost in this almost in this place. That if a political party, whichever one, stands up and says, this is the way we are going to solve this problem, I almost go, that's definitely not going to be God's way. Because they work from a paradigm in a system that doesn't change. It's not the kingdom of love in operation. It's only the kingdom of love. It's only the kingdom of God that changes the world in any substantive way. So here's the phrase as I was preparing that came into my heart. If I'm committed to the kingdom, if I want to transform the world, I will not be patterned by the world or my personal past. I will not be patterned by the world or my personal past because I want to be committed to God's kingdom. When I realize that the value of the kingdom outweighs everything, I will not be patterned by this world. I will not allow my personal past to determine how I engage because that's the journey of the heart that we have to embrace. I don't think we need more political activists. I can tolerate social activists. I disciple many intentionally. But what we really need are biblical activists. What we really need are kingdom activists whose hearts are sold out to the kingdom of God. So let's talk a little bit about being committed to the kingdom, to the rule and reign of God, to God's kingdom. Well, simply put, are you? Are you prepared to let the future reality that God's kingdom is coming govern your present conduct? It's two interesting, well, there's many interesting passages, but in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, uh, chapters in Daniel are chapters 2 and chapter 7, where prophetic words come to Daniel and to John the Apostle in, in Revelation about God's kingdom that is coming. And I just want to read some verses so that you get a feel for 
the future reality that is headed our way. Daniel 2, 44. Daniel's just seen a vision. He's just interpreted a vision for Nebuchadnezzar about the kingdoms of the world and successions of world powers. And then he talks, in the time of those kings, these worldly rulers, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people. It will crush those kingdoms. It will bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. There's only one kingdom. There's only one system of government. There's only one rule that will never end, and that is the rule of God. How does that affect your present conduct? Are you building for that which is eternal? Daniel 7 says something similar. Revelation 11, 15. Second half of the verse. It says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Every kingdom of this world will be absorbed. It will be crushed. It will be overtaken by the kingdom of God. That is the future of reality according to the Scriptures. How is that governing our present conduct? That God's kingdom is the only eternal kingdom. That God's kingdom is coming and Christ will reign. Are we living for, sorry if the language is offensive, mere petty human ideologies, simple things that are going to come and they are going to go. Lights that light up, philosophies that light up for a while, that will just be snuffed out. There's only one thing that is true and one thing that is worth living for forever. And that is the kingdom of God. So how about investing your life in something that lasts? How about investing your life in something that is eternal? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, the author of Hebrews writes and he says, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, there's only one kingdom, there's only one thing that is certain, that the kingdom of God will not be shaken. Everything else will be shaken and will come to naught. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. This is a great verse because it says that God's kingdom will not be shaken. But it tells us how, well, it tells us that there's a response necessary to the kingdom. You cannot meet the kingdom with indifference. You respond with reverence. You respond with thankfulness. You respond with worship that is acceptable. You respond with awe. I believe our response is a radical, uncompromising, unrelenting, passionate devotion to God and His ways. A radical, uncompromising, unrelenting, passionate devotion to God and His ways. That is how we will change the world. I'm going to skip to the end just for the guys on the, on the slides. The value of the kingdom outweighs everything. That's what the treasure in the field and the pool of great price teach us. The value of the kingdom outweighs everything. So what's your bigger picture? How about making your bigger picture the kingdom of God? How about making your bigger picture a commitment to living for and in God's kingdom? Living a life committed to the kingdom. Our major theme this year throughout the whole year in the church has been the disciples' quest. The disciples' quest is the kingdom of God. But this journey starts, and Pastor Louis shared far more eloquently than I ever could about it this morning. So YouTube, watch um, this morning's service. 
But this journey always starts with us taking up responsibility. If you want to be committed to the kingdom, it's yours. You don't um, outsource discipleship. You can't put a tender out to say, who's going to come and take responsibility for my discipleship? I'm going to go to seven churches. Sorry, I don't mean to be irreverent. I'm going to go to seven churches and I'm going to tender to which of them is going to be the ones who win the reward to best disciple me. So completely missing the point. The issue here is we commit to the kingdom. We take responsibility for our lives. It starts, sorry, with you and you alone. That's where the responsibility for the kingdom starts. And so we read the words of God that the value of the kingdom outweighs, well, they're my words, it's the interpretation of God's words, sorry. The value of the kingdom outweighs everything. How do you take responsibility for that? What do you do with those words? It starts with, we live in a kingdom that's not of this world. It doesn't work like the nation states that we're currently experiencing. It's a kingdom of love. And so as I end tonight, what is your bigger picture? What do you want to make your life part of? Sorry, I'm doing maths quickly. 33 years ago, and there's others here that have done this longer than me, so that's cool. I knelt at a communion rail, and I said, he died for me, and I'll live for him. Never, ever regretted making the kingdom of God and living for him part of my bigger picture. Because the kingdom is coming, and it's real, and it's the only thing that's eternal. There's nothing more valuable that you can invest all you've got in. So I'd like to pray for us tonight as we close. I'm not going to ask anyone to come to the front, but I'd like for you just to take up your responsibility in this space, you and God alone. And just here, is there anything that God is saying to you that you just need to pick up, that you need to step up on, that maybe you even need to surrender to? Maybe you need to let go of certain things you've been holding on to so that you can embrace more of what God's got for you. But God knows where you are. I don't necessarily know that. In fact, I don't know it at all. No words of knowledge. Father, thank you so much that we live in your kingdom. That Jesus came to make it real. That your kingdom comes in our hearts, as we sang tonight, in our homes and in this world. But that your kingdom comes through us. And so, Lord, I pray more and more for each of us, your kingdom would be like the treasure that we find, that we're ready just to abandon everything to get hold of it, that the kingdom would be like the pearl of great price, that we give up everything we have to take hold of it. And so, Lord, you know where each one is this evening in this room. You know where they are on their faith journeys. You know where they are in their community expression. And so I pray, Jesus, that you come and you challenge, and you speak, and you heal where is necessary. Perhaps God gives you a thought, or there's a conviction in your heart, or there's just a small whisper, or over the next few days there's a growing realization of a place of surrender that God wants to bring you to. 
But if you want to be committed to the kingdom, it starts with you. And it starts with you alone. And so I end my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you for joining us tonight. Trust that you've encountered God in some real way. That there's seeds that are sown in your hearts that will lead to rich and great fruit.